Hi, this is David Decoto. Uh, I've been asked by Matt and Dave at the uh, Schlock Pit to uh, give my thoughts on my friend Stuart Gordon, who directed this motion picture, Dolls. Um, I'm happy to be working with Arrow Video again on this. Uh, I do a lot of commentaries with David DelVal. I chose to do this one on my own since I'm in some ways connected to the people that made this movie. So um, anyway, so here's our title sequence, beautiful title sequence. This is a typical uh, Empire title sequence, uh, titles over black. Uh, the movie's pretty short, 78 minutes, but... Uh, I used to live literally a block and a half away from Empire Pictures. And, um, but, flash back to 1976, 77, I saw my first Charles Band, theater, um, Charles Band theatrical release, Crash. I think it's his directorial debut as well. And um, uh, at the Rosemoyer Theater in Portland, Oregon, and... I love that movie so much that I said, boy, when I moved to Hollywood to be a director, producer, I want to work for Charles Band and uh, followed his career a little bit. And uh, I ended up moving literally in an apartment about two blocks away from Empire, right on La Brea, south of Hollywood Boulevard. Hollywood Boulevard is um, essentially uh, West Coast version of 42nd Street. A lot of movie theaters uh, played, you know, A pictures, but also played a lot of B pictures. And um, I started uh, working for Empire. I directed a movie called Dream Maniac. Um, but a lot of it was really... Dream Maniac was really inspired by a couple of movies that I saw in the theater on Hollywood Boulevard. I saw Return of the Living Dead that starred uh, an actress who would become a very good friend of mine, Linnea Quigley. But I also saw uh, the unrated version of a film called Reanimator, directed by a man named Stuart Gordon, who I had never heard of. Um, I think it was his first movie. He was a theater director from Chicago. And uh, sitting at the Paramount Theater, which is right across the street from the Chinese Theater, Grauman's Chi Chinese Theater on... Uh, on uh, Hollywood Boulevard was a, a theater called pa the Paramount, which has since become um, the Disney's El Capitan Theater. It's like the premier theater on Hollywood Boulevard now. But back in the day, it was a uh, grindhouse. And um, movies like, I remember one Friday, there was a movie on the marquee, a film was opening called Twilight of the Dead. And I said, what the heck is that? It's funny, they changed the marquee Saturday morning to Gates of Hell. Um, so I think somebody at the theater uh, or the distributor of that particular film was served and uh, said, you better switch your title. It's a little too close to another of the dead um, uh, movie franchise. Um, but um, anyways, I went to see uh, Reanimator um, and uh, with some friends of mine, and it was a packed audience. It was a Friday night. And we had heard a little bit about it, I think, at Fangoria Magazine. But it was, you know, it was the kind of thing where it was like, well, what is Reanimator? What could it be? Oh, H.P. Lovecraft? Interesting. Well, the movie started, and what was unleashed upon us 
was um, one of the most visionary, in-your-face, over-the-top, shameless, fearless horror movies I'd ever seen. Um, funny, brilliant, incredible script, great acting. It, everything worked. That movie fired on every cylinder. So as we staggered out of the theater after it, great music score too by my friend um, Richard Band. As, I, as we all staggered out of the theater afterwards, I thought, horror movies have changed. Horror movies have changed. First of all, it was released unrated, which was very rare. You could do it. A lot of times people said they couldn't do it, but you could get a booking um, as long as it wasn't a sex picture. You know, if it was just gore and it was unrated, you could you could probably get a theatrical booking, especially at theaters like the Paramount and other grindhouses, even on 42nd Street. Anyways, I saw this movie and I was just so amazed. But I went to see a couple of other films made by Empire, Zone Troopers. Um, there was another one I can't remember that Ted Nicolau directed. Um, and, uh, you know, at the World Theater, which is even more of a grindhouse than the Paramount on Hollywood Boulevard, I lived a block off of Hollywood Boulevard. So, you know, it's, it, I saw everything, you know, um, every horror movie, every B movie. I mean, that was the business I got, wanted to get into when I moved to Los Angeles when I was 18 from Portland, Oregon. Anyways, so through several friends of mine, um, I, I had started working at Roger Corman's when I was 18, and um, Roger's assistant uh, at the time was Gail Ann Hurd, who's now become a big mega producer. And then her new assistant was John Schuweiler, who um, knew the head of production development at Empire. And uh, I had had her, she was going to be a screenwriter. Uh, her name was Anne. And she ended up uh, writing this cool little script for me and told um, Empire about it. I mean, I told this story a million times, so I'm going to move on uh, pretty quick here. But anyways, I ended up getting a production deal with with Empire. Um, and um, this is Carolyn Gordon here. Amazing. Um, and um, so I did a film called Dream Maniac. And, but they, they also had a studio. Empire had a studio in Rome or just outside of Rome. That was the old Dino De Laurentiis studio that uh, Charlie bought and um, and was making movies there. And um, I got to meet Albert Band. Um, I got to meet a lot of people at the company. And um, But uh, I think while I was shooting Dream Maniac, the Stuart Gordon guy, who I had not met, um, was... Um, in Italy shooting this film. And getting ready, I think they're getting ready to shoot Ghoulies too, I think, at that point. In any case, uh, I eventually I meet um, Stewart at the premiere of From Beyond, which is a film he made, I think, either af before this or after this in Italy. And um, I saw it at the Hollywood Pacific Theater, another grindhouse. Um, and I got to meet Stewart and told him how much I liked even that movie, but nothing really could compare to Reanimator. Anyway, so this movie, Dolls, I had heard they had made it, but there was some delay in getting it released theatrically. 
Um, I ended up seeing the movie on Hollywood Boulevard. It played a week, I think two theaters in all of LA. And I was really taken with this film. It's so beautifully made. The acting, it just, Stewart knows exactly how to have the perfect amount of horror, perfect amount of laughs, perfect amount of everything. And just, he just one hell of a director. And Empire was really lucky to have him because after Reanimator, he was uh, very much uh, getting ready to do movies for Disney, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and stuff. And so, but he, uh, Stuart, fell kind of, he really adored Albert Band, Charlie's father, and they produced a lot of movies together. And they loved Stuart. He was a real A-list director at a B-movie company, and I was running the C unit. So, um, but um, um, I was supposed to actually go out and shoot a film in, in Italy, but I ended up, it was better for me to work in L.A., because they were, I did the films in L.A. and then they, um, there was some people doing some films in Connecticut and New York, and then they also had their Italian unit going. I think they were also doing films in Spain. Yes, they did. As a matter of fact, a film called what was it called? Remember, there's a big one sheet, big not one sheet, big forty sheet, big billboard of it um, on Sunset Boulevard. It was their big thousand print theatrical. I can't remember what it was called. But um, um, in any case, um, so um, as things moved along, Empire was sold uh, back to the bank. The bank actually foreclosed on pretty much all the companies, independent companies that were borrowing money from them at the time because the VHS market, although did very, very well, didn't really, eh, it didn't really do all that great. And so um, a lot of these loans were foreclosed on and Empire was, I was shooting a film at the time um, called Dr. Alien um, and for Empire. And I got a call from their head of production said, whatever you do, just keep shooting. The bank has arrived. They're closing us down. They're taking everything. They're raiding our vault. Um, but everybody's leaving. The bank has arrived, but do not stop shooting. Because I had a, a whole other week, I think, of shooting to do, knowing that the company was, but we were short, sort of this secret production in L.A., film called Dr. Alien, one of my favorite experiences making movies. In any case, um, so... Um, uh, so that was the that was the the last picture I made before Charlie closed up shop at Empire, literally walked across the street to a tower, which was where Russ Meyer's old offices used to be, right on Hollywood Boulevard in La Brea. Russ Meyer, uh, his wife, uh, booked their films and ran RM Films out of a an office building, and Charlie got a an office and started a company. Literally started a company called Phantom Video and was able to make arrangements with Paramount Pictures to release Dr. Alien on video through Paramount. So my film was the first film to basically get released through Paramount. I was very, very happy with it um, and uh, very, very happy with the release. It's kind of nice to make a little indie movie and next thing you know, um, you, know you put the VHS in, hit play, and the Paramount logo starts up. It's kind of like, well, okay, this is cool. It's actually working out, this crazy uh, decision I made to move to Hollywood. In any case, so I, um, um, 
I, I get called to, uh, they make a film called Puppet Master, which I had nothing to do with. I was busy doing other films for other companies, and I got really, really busy. Um, I had an office with my partner, business partner, John Schuweiler, on Selma, an old office building, uh, very cheap rent. And we found out that was the same office building that Sam Arkoff and James Nicholson birthed uh, the artist American Releasing Corporation, which ultimately became American International Pictures. And we were in their actual office. So we were essentially start, starting our own little company, service company, working for other you know, distributors. We were on sacred ground and we had a lot of good luck there. Uh, Fred Ray took an office right next door to me. I had other people there uh, that it was a nice little office. We all used to have lunch together on Sunset Boulevard. And it was, we were right there in Film Row, you know. And, uh, but anyways, Charlie um, did a film called The Puppet Master, which worked out pretty well. David Schmoller directed it and uh, who became a friend and really great guy. And um, that, that really took off. It was a big, big hit for um, Full Moon. And so Charlie says, hey, you know, why don't you come back um, and line produce some movies that I direct? So I, I produced a film for him called Crash and Burn uh, that Charlie directed, I produced. And then uh, he wanted me to produce David Allen's first film, Puppet Master 2, which I did. Um, and uh, I introduced David Allen to my high school buddy, Christopher Endicott, who uh, he and I were good friends back in high school. And he was the biggest fan of dimensional stop motion animation that I'd ever met in my life. And so when he moved to LA, I introduced him to David Allen and David Allen, when I was producing puppet master two for him, David Allen's an interesting, an interesting cat. Um, it was a very challenging movie. It was his first film. Charlie owed him a lot and, um, uh, a lot of favor. So I needlessly had to juggle a lot to be able to produce the movie. I ultimately had four camera units shooting simultaneously, um, I brought on a <clears throat> director named King Wilder, who did an awesome job, uh, and Julia Vola. Line produced all the second unit, and we got all. We were, I mean, we were constantly shooting, and we got David's first movie in the can. And David, who wasn't a big fan of me, you know, I'm the cheap, low budget guy from the company, you know, so the, they don't necessarily. I'm, I'm run into that my whole career. I don't give a shit. Um, they like me or not, I'm producing their movie. If they don't like me, they can get somebody else. Everybody else seems to be available. So, but I introduced him to Chris Endicott. Chris Endicott became David Allen's right-hand man on Puppet Master 2. And ultimately, um, David, the one compliment he gave me, David Allen sort of head down, sort of walked over me and said, hey, thank you. The best thing you've ever done for me is you introduced me to Chris Endicott. And to this day, Chris Endicott, even after David passed, passed away, Dave, uh, Chris has kept the Primeval's movie, which we saw ads for back in Cinema City Fantastic magazine back when we were kids, back in high school. Uh, they just finally finished the Primeval's because David passed while they were in post-production. And it was a very ambitious, multi-million dollar company. So, but I mean company, multi-million dollar movie. Um, by a small B, B company. So it was one of their biggest productions. In any case, um, um, 
so I start producing my own movies and everything. And then, you know, we would do our little our little trips to Chicago. I would work with Charlie. Uh, I would go on the Full Moon Horror Roadshow tour with him, and we would. Uh, Charlie was the rock star. I was his uh, what was his promo guy, and we would uh, pull into these little cockamamie towns and put on a show for the fans. and And Stewart met with us, and I got to meet Stewart and talk with him quite a bit. And he was very very sweet, and um, uh, became just a lovely, lovely, sweet man, and so brilliantly talented. And um, and I was so impressed with his movie, The Pit and the Pendulum, as well. So, in any case, Stuart and I became friends. And um, um, I was working a lot and um, doing a lot of movies for a lot of different companies. Um, from, from what I lacked in ability and talent to direct, I was made up for it in enthusiasm and chutzpah and salesmanship because... I usually got a green light pretty quick on every pitch I made. And um, anyways, I remember getting a call from Stuart one day. And he had done been done a lot of pictures. This must have been two, late 90s, early 2000s. I can't remember. And he said, let me take you to lunch. And so he took me to lunch. And, uh, of course, I met him for lunch. It's a Thai place right on Vine and Sunset that everybody likes. I think it was Shandara. Anyways, and he was very complimentary. And he said... David, um, you know, I just want to let you know that you directed Charles Band's best movie. And I said, what? He said, I, he says, I loved Puppet Master 3. And he was so complimentary. I was just like very moved by it because he didn't need to do that, you know. And he just said, you know, if there's anything you need, he says, you know, when you get the right script, which I did, written by Courtney Joyner, brilliant script when you get a great cast i'm going to segue into guy rolf in just a second here um and when you get a you know great production value and great line producer you know it's kind of i said yeah i said it, the, this script was direct this whole package was director proof i just had to cast it right i had to block it right and stage it right and it, shockingly puppet master 3 was the lowest budget of the first five Puppet Master movies. Um, and, um, but uh, based on that, uh, I was able to get a lot more work, but Stuart took me until just to tell me how much he really, really enjoyed it. And um, he also said he was about to make a movie for a company called The Asylum called King of the Ants or something. And he was wanted some tips on low budget, how to shoot with short ends. And I, you know, I basically, Gave him a lot of advice and everything, and that movie kind of turned out pretty cool. Anyways, so Stuart was um, just a really, really good friend, but he was very, very complimentary about about that film, and we kept in touch. Um, and uh, his wife, Carolyn Gordon, who you see here, is an actress, obviously. And um, I told her, I said, "Look, I'm going to put you." In. So I put, I put. Uh, I put Carolyn in some movies, you know, nothing too fancy. Just, uh, you know, like I did a film called Snow White for Lionsgate, and I had her play Snow White's psychologist. Um, and um, so I loved Carolyn. But they, Carolyn also uh, was just an incredible cook, great chef. So we'd always invite her on when we make movies. we say, why don't you come cook for the crew, you know, make, make some of your specialties and bring them out to the crew. And so she would always... She'd also, you know, she'd feed us and everything. They would invite me over to um, um, uh, me and my producing partner over for dinner at their house. 
So I became pretty tight with him and he would call me actually often and ask for certain things, especially if there was a way to do something that was either a more affordable way that looked better, but just more affordable. And he, you know, he, you know, I would give him advice on that kind of stuff. And then he would give me advice. So we were really, really tight. So, but uh, speaking of uh, the great cast of Puppet Master 3, the film, my film starred this man, the lead, the lead in this movie. I and mean, he looks fucking great, by the way. Um, Guy Rolf. Um, Guy Rolf, uh, he was a British actor, was a contract player at Rank. Now, he had done some great movies. He had done, I think, one or two Hammer films, a pirate movie, I think. He also had done um, a William Castle movie called Mr. Sardonicus, who I'd seen him in. And then he left. He, he There was a lot of, there was a time in the UK where taxation went through the roof. And a lot of actors, I think Chris Lee moved to Switzerland and Guy Rolfe and his wife moved to Spain. And they bought a potato farm out in Spain. And uh, he lived out there. And I remember um, I said, well, you know, why did you guys think of Guy Rolfe? They go, well, we kind of, you know, Stuart was a fan. And so they, he had worked with him on this movie. And so I asked Stuart, I said, how was he? He says, he's lovely. So we sent a, this was pre-internet. Um, I don't even think Rolf, uh, Guy Rolfe would have even had internet at the time if we had it. But he said, this is, what was it, 1990 maybe? He said, um, hey, um, Let's send him a script for Puppet Master 3 and say if, see if he'll play the new Andre Toulon because I think in the first movie it was um, I can't remember the actor um, that was in the first one, I'm sorry but um, but um, uh, I don't think he was available or he might have passed away, I can't remember William Hickey Anyway, so um, but Guy got the script two weeks later I mean, we sent it overnight but, you know, Potato Farm, Spain, uh, rural Spain. We got the script maybe even about a week. He read it. They called, made phone calls. He said, I'll do it. And we had to pull his paperwork. He had not worked in the United States. This film was shot in, uh, in Italy, obviously. But he had not worked in the United States in so many years that the Screen Actors Guild had to go back in their, um, I mean, uh, in, in their uh, files. I mean, their they might have to, I mean his original SAG contract might have been written on parchment I mean he had admitted I don't think he'd done a picture in the United States since well since since the um, the um, uh, William Castle movie so they had to go back and, and microfiche to find the contract to, to make sure he was still a member or if he's not a member or what so we were able to work that out got him a work permit and uh, Guy Rolfe became the star of Puppet Master 3 um Um, as I've always said, I really, I mean, I, I, when I talked to Charlie, I said, I'd really liked, uh, you know, I love the idea of Guy Rolfe as, as Andre Toulon and Ian Abercrombie as Hess and Walter Gotel from the Bond movies and every, a few other movies, including, I think he did a few hammers as the main, uh, Nazi. And I wanted to go with Christopher Neem who had came in to audition for us for this movie. And, and Charlie was, you know. He was like, no, no, I want Richard Lynch. We just worked with him. And I had produced Trancers too, for Charlie, which directed Richard and I got along great And um, on that. But I said, he's just too American. 
I said, Christopher Neem, I mean, British cast, horror movie, set in Europe, British, Charlie, British, Night of the Generals, come on, let's go, no, no. He said, no, I want to use, I want to use Richard Lynch. I was disappointed. I had Sarah Douglas in the movie. See, I have a thing for British horror movies, okay? Even the bad ones are pretty fucking good. <laughs> you know, it's just at some point, you know, you watch, you're on Netflix and you watch The Crown and you go, maybe we should, we should just let the British make all of our entertainment because they just get it right all the time. And even, like I said, some of the weaker British films um, are still good. So I wanted an all-British cast. I wanted... It, you know, to, we were we were actually thinking about possibly shooting it in Romania. We couldn't work that out, so that's why we had to shoot it here. And Guy Rolf had to get a work permit. But um, I learned a lot from Guy because there was a time where we were having a very very difficult big very, there was difficulty with the puppets because I tried to shoot the puppets tied in with the actors, and usually the puppet stuff is all done second unit. And I had only had an eighteen day shoot. And I remember one point we were focusing on the puppets and I should have been a little more efficient in my timing and shot Guy Rolf out of the scene by then and let, let him go home. And he kind of walked up and he goes, David, what is the name of this movie? I said, Puppet Master. And he says, mm-hmm. I said, oh, okay, I get it. Rolf. I'm Sky, I'm so sorry. So we ended up sending him off. Uh, I shot him out and then sent him off. But, but <clears throat> I learned a lot from him and I also just... I had a 17-page day where I block shot the scenes, and I shot... Ugh, it was just very tough, and he was extremely exhausted. And um, But um, uh, well, we got along really, really good. Um, in any case, um, the um, that movie did very well for me, and I moved on to a bunch of other pictures, and then um, got lucky and directed a film called Skeletons with Christopher Plummer, James Coburn, and uh, Ron Silver. And... Uh, for HBO, I shot that at the Warner on the Warner Brothers backlot. So I got to work with some great actors, and so it's just the the greater the actor, the better. You know, they're just it's just so the the, the greater they are, this is so easy. I don't have to work so hard, you know, because they just bring it to the table. In any case, so um, this movie comes out; it's so beautifully done. But I got there was one other star of this film besides Guy Rolf and besides. Um, uh, the lovely uh, Carolyn Gordon um, is this man who I would stand on the set. The first time I had worked with him was I, I produced a film called Crash and Burn that Charlie directed. And I would just sit there and watch him work. And it was a man named Mac Alberg. Now, um, it was a very complicated relationship that Mac and I made. So we were going to do Crash and Burn. And this is when we had left Empire in a full moon and we had an output deal, or Charlie had an output deal with Paramount, but still there could be cash flow issues and blah, blah, blah. So what happened was, is we were, it was a very involved science fiction movie with robots, tall robots, explosion, stunts, action, lots of stuff. And I brought in all my best stunt people and pyro people, and it worked out just really, really terrific. And uh, but the day before shooting is when you send your department heads, you know, or, you know, you send your camera department to load the camera truck. You send your grip electrical crew to go load the trucks for the lighting and you send it. And Charlie called me at about noon, 1 p.m. the day before shooting and said, dude, I said, yes. And he says, 
we got no dough. And I said, uh-huh. And he says, asset rich, cash poor, dude. Asset rich, cash poor. I've got gold gold um, bars and everything at the castle. I've got no cash right now. i got to start shooting tomorrow, dude, but I have no cash. I said, Charlie, as you know, you know, you're as the vendors need to be paid in advance. I can't get terms with them, sadly, with all due respect to you, Charlie. It's tough to get terms, especially at the rates we're paying and the reputation of uh, his uh, some of his previous movies, you know. So um, and so I was like, well, Charlie, I have to do it. But but I mean, I have to go get a, a, a super peewee over at Mole Richards. I got I mean, there's this is high end equipment that Mac wants. He says, dude, Mac's great. He's he's dude. He's great. I said, why don't we have any money? He says, dude, it's like two ships passing in the night. You know, it just doesn't happen. And sometimes you wake up in that one morning and you check your bank balance and, dude, the money's just not there. But, you know, we're making movies. Let's go. Let's make that movie. I said, Charlie, I don't have any cash. I can't even buy donuts tomorrow morning. We have zero. You haven't cash flowed us a penny. Everybody's been working, you know, and collecting and fronting cash and everything. Dude, no, trust just give me a couple of days. Everything's going to be good. So I did not get Mac his Super Pee Wee. I went to my old friend Bob Stint, who had a, an ancient uh, hydraulic dolly that he must have used on Mannix. Um, and um, we, it was just all the gear we had to get was from vendors who I could get terms with and who could possibly be able to shoot, uh, provide us the equipment without any cash. So sadly, day one, I arrived thrilled to be working with Mac Alberg. We unload equipment and here comes the dolly, here comes the light. And Mac looks at the equipment and looks at me and says, this isn't the equipment I ordered, young man. I said, yeah. I said, but this is all I could get. And he raised the the tri the dolly head, all the, the 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 hydraulic dolly head all the way to the and it was shaking like he goes, I can't use this equipment. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, but he goes, Are you are we doing this? Are you just being cheap? This is what he told me. And I said, I said, Mac, you've worked with Charlie before. We have had we have cash flow problems. There is no money. He didn't, he was supposed to give me money. He goes, No excuses, they're just you line producers and nothing but excuses. Anyways. From that point on, Mac Alberg hated me. <laughs> I, I remember years later, I mean, I worked with Mac on a couple of things, but years later, Mac said, um, he said, uh, um, I got a call from Benna, who was Charlie's secretary, saying, boy, Mac is out of work right now. He desperately needs cash. Just, do you have any work for him? anywhere he'll do anything just give is there he's just really needs the work is there anything you could possibly do is there anything you could possibly do any any job in it i said sure i'm doing a movie i start shooting in a week and a half i can he goes call him right now and and get him he goes let him know and i said okay so i got the number and i called mac and um i said hey mac dave dakota and he goes yeah 
I said, I got this movie coming up. I really need a DP, and I heard you might be available. He goes, I'm booked for the next year. Bye. Hangs up on me. So, <laughs> needless to say, um, Mac Alberg, whose work on films like this, films like um, the, the smallest pictures, um, uh, Tomboy, um, uh, for Crown International, um, he shot... Um, What's that um, vampire? What is it? The, the first one he did with, uh, oh, what was it called? With that British actor, Anthony Hamilton. <clears throat> oh, excuse me, Australian actor. Sorry. Um, the, uh, what was the name of that movie? Vam not Vampira, but uh, I can't remember. But he was, he shot that movie. He had shot all these. So Hell Knight he had shot, which was gorgeous. I mean, I was a huge fan of his. He was, his work was just brilliant. But sadly, we did one movie together, and that was it. And Mac was off doing... Actually, right after that, he started working for John Landis and did, like, Beverly Hills Cop 3, another big movie. So, but, um, um, so sadly, my relationship did not work very well with him because uh, I tried to do my best and give him the gear he wanted, made the best deals. But it's tough making a low-budget movie, but it's tough making a low-budget movie without $1 in the bank. Um, so, um, but we ended up making it happen. I got it. We, we figured it out and squeezed this. But the minute I arrived to the set on day one, after Mac Alberg was upset with me, I said, Charlie, what do you got in your pocket? He had like 20 bucks. I said, now I can go buy donuts. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how we made movies back then. Uh, Charlie was probably one of the most, not ambitious, um, he's ambitious, but most, um, when you're very um, optimistic, don't worry, dude, the money will come. The money will come. Let's start rolling, making movies, making movies. And um, so actually, I think Mac shot Ghoulies as well, which looked fantastic. In any case, so, um, but uh, it's, uh, Empire was, was, quite, was quite the place. And, uh, oh, so anyways, I started making a lot of movies. And then I did my Skeletons movie with, that, you know, Chris Plummer and everybody. I thought, oh boy, Morton, Warner Brothers backlot, and oh, the movie was on a, it was an HBO premiere. I thought, oh my God, I'm on my way. You know, and then of course crickets, um, uh, as it happens in this business. Uh, you know, the ladder doesn't always go up. Sometimes it goes down. So there's no, there's no centrifugal force. There's no helium in a career. Sometimes you go high. Sometimes you go low. So anyways, uh, luckily, and I had joined the Directors Guild. I had done a movie with uh, Richard Grieco and Mario Lopez and Jamie Presley called Absolution, which I liked. I joined the DGA. I'm on my way. Not really. Crickets. So uh, about three months later, I got to be working. I got to be in prep, shooting, or post-production constantly. I'm a workaholic. I love to work. I love to make movies. So, but I waited three or four months, six months. I thought some things were happening. I had a lot of meetings. I had Quentin Tarantino's manager, uh, Catherine James. Um, uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to be, but what was very interesting is what I learned very quickly at that point is that you really, you know, to really succeed in something like that, just being a journeyman, um, journeyman director, a working director and not writing made it very, very difficult to get that career going. Because if you're a writer director, you have a script, you've written a script, you, you know, 
Um, or if you're a writer-director, they say you can direct the movie, but you have to rewrite it for free. And you have to keep rewriting it for the next week or the next year so it gets greenlit. So if you're a writer, they make you work for free to get the directing job a lot of times. And I have a lot of friends of mine who are writer-directors who run through that experience. Um, but um, the uh, So it was very difficult because I don't write screenplays. I prefer to work with writers. I love working with writers. Um, I, I prefer to have the writers on set. Um, people have said, well, was Courtney Joyner on the set of uh, Puppet Master 3? And I said, every second. I mean, he was involved in every casting session. He was involved in looking at the, the breakdown and going through all the actors that had submitted. Courtney was a creative force in that movie because I love writers and I love to keep them involved because they always have great ideas because they're writers. And, you know, and I have a lot of great ideas too. And I, but I like to just get the writer to sign off. So on that picture, I had Courtney there every minute on Dr. Alien. I had Kenneth J. Hall there every minute, including casting. Um, and, uh, and people have told me, you know, boy, don't do the writer. Don't they kind of take charge of it? Not, no. If everybody likes what's happening, they just sit back and watch their movie be made. And if there's a, a question that an actor has that I don't know, because I can't answer every question. I go, hey, here's the writer right here. Hey, Ken, uh, Courtney, what did you, what was your intention with this line? Can we switch this line? Can we flip it? Because sometimes certain lines don't fit in certain actors' mouths. They have trouble just uh, getting those, some of those words out. And I, I, on Skeletons, I had um, Joshua, Joshua Michael, what was his last name? He's become a big time writer, a big show director too, big time. I'm so sorry, Joshua, I can't remember your name. I had him there every second. I, and, but sadly, most of the movies I make are so low budget, the writers can't afford to live in LA. <laughs> so, they, so they end up you know, sending the script and I make the movie without them. But, um, no, I love writers, and so I did, I've never become one. And I also let writers know I'm not the kind of director who sits at the, you know, the um, final draft uh, software uh, and rewrite their scripts. I don't do that. I do a production polish, and uh, but I don't change much of anything. I try to shoot the, the script that I've been hired so to do. So, um, but um, in any case, so... Um, so, but uh, things didn't, the career started to, you know, sort of slow down and, well, slow down. I didn't work for 90 days, so I was panicked. And so I called Charlie, and of course, Charlie always, you know, always rescues me. And he said, uh, hey, come on, um, come on back. I'm doing, I'm not with Paramount anymore. I'm doing my own self-distribution, but I can really use you and um, on these movies and um, I got an office for you. They had a really nice, they were in, um, on Hollywood and Vine in the old Broadway building, which is where Howard Hughes lived. He had a, he had a two-story um, suite in this, uh, basically floors eight and nine of the Broadway building is where Howard Hughes lived. And he, he was a hermit and he kind of stayed in there. Well, that's, Charlie took that over as his production office for Full Moon. And um, he gave me a great office view of the Hollywood sign, was very supportive. Here's money, you know, and I uh, was very, very helpful. So I started doing some movies for him. And one thing that I had done um, 
um, with the um, with the uh, skeletons movie is I I've always you know I used to be a projectionist back in the movie theaters back in Portland Oregon when I started the the, the business at 15 years old I was the candy candy counter boy I remember I had a crazy had a crazy day I I would um, I was always a workaholic so in high school um, I would be at I would be at the school at 7 a.m. to run the um, uh, student store because if you ran the student store they gave you free supplies school supplies so I'd go from 7 to 8 and then class would start and then about a half an hour before lunch I would go work in the cafeteria to get my free lunch if you worked in the cafeteria they fed you for free so I was a dishwasher in the cafeteria then I get out at a class at 3 30 drive down to downtown Portland to the Broadway theater which was the last surviving grindhouse theater in Portland Oregon and become a uh, can I was a candy counter boy and then I switched over if you when you turned 16 you could work in the booth because as far as I was concerned you weren't in show business until you touched the film so um, I uh, uh, became a projectionist on my 16th birthday and uh, worked at the Broadway theater and um, I would work in the theater until about midnight one o'clock and if it was a Friday or Saturday night I would go to Mildred's Palace which was an 18 over gay disco in Portland and so I would go to Mildred's Palace for about an hour hour 15 and then I had to drive back home to to Milwaukee which is the area I lived in and um, I could if I got there before two o'clock my father didn't come home from work because I was at the time raised by an only by, by a, a single parent and um, if I could get back by two o'clock I could be in bed and asleep by two o'clock when my father arrived so I kind of had like the perfect life as a gay kid but it was my it was my work ethic I loved to work I loved to earn my keep I never wanted to get money from my father or anything and then when I turned 18 I moved to LA but anyways enough of that so I always worked and I always you know loved being a projectionist and but I remember when I was a projectionist if a movie was in cinemascope and I'm not talking the you the, the the jargon used now 16 by 9 widescreen super 35 that's all cheating back in the good old days we used to shoot in 235 cinemascope which was squeezed it was squeezed when it was filmed and it was unsqueezed when it was projected and because of that, people say, oh, you're just cutting off the tops and bottoms. No, not really. Cinemascope was, um, you were actually using more of the negative. So your splice had to be ultra thin because basically you were squeezing it so it was tall and skinny on the frame. When you unsqueezed it, it was wide. And it took it, so that's why Cinemascope movies were always very sh you know, sharp, very clean, very you know like halloween was shot in cinemascope great movies all great movies were shot so it was but the b movies when they were because i think even i don't know if even yeah i think graden clark shot some movies in cinemascope i mean you never really should do them you know b movies in scope but but charlie shot crash in scope and everything like that but i shot skeletons in scope and it looked great but sadly, when when HBO took it, they just put the pan and scan on. Oh, you know, pan and scan is deadly. Um, in any case, 
now they show present things in scope and everything like that. But back in 1996, back in 1996, um, I um, I wanted to shoot in scope, and HBO pretty much just they weren't showing things in widescreen and stuff like that at the time, from what I remember. Um, I'm going to get a real quick drink of water here. I should have had water standing by. Don't go away. So anyways, I tell Charlie, let's make a movie in CinemaScope. And Charlie remembers the good old days of CinemaScope. I think he shot not only Crash in CinemaScope, <clears throat> I think he shot, um, oh, what was it? Cinderella in Scope. Anyways, Scope, the bigger the better. Except he shot Tourist Trap in Panavision with Panavision cameras, but shot at 185. I had a big argument with the, the projectionist at the uh, Mall 205 Theater in Portland, Oregon, when I went to see a movie and said Panavision, but it was 185. Great movie, though. I love Tourist Trap. But it's like, wait a second. Anyways, so Charlie was about to direct a movie called Bride of the head of the family, I think he was going to do. And he uh, got real busy. And he said, well, what do you, um, what do you, what do you think you can do a movie in 35 millimeter for? How much? So I ran some numbers saying, look, you know, back then the HBO minimum running time on a feature was 72 minutes, which included, um, the end credits. So I said, I can get you 72 in six in six days. I can get you 72 minutes in six days. It's like a comedian. Could you give me 15 up there on the stage? Give me 15. You know, they owe, everything's in time. I said, I can do 72 minutes and I can get it done in six days. I'll make it real scary. And I remember Charlie talking on on um, on the uh, on the set of Crash and Burn. He was juggling. Obviously, there was cash flow issues. So he had was on the phone with uh, Pino DiNaggio, speaking in Italian. Pino needed to be paid for, was it Meridian Kiss of the Beast? I can't remember. Anyways, so, um, but um, he had was making a trading card thing, and he, of horror trading cards, they were called Shriekers. I said, God, that's a Nick great name. So I remembered it when I pitched. I said, why don't we call it Shrieker? Because a movie called Scream had just come out. And it was a huge hit. So Shrieker, Scream, Slasher. But instead of a slasher, it's a monster with a two-headed monster. I saw a piece of artwork. He had original artwork all over his office. And it was very inspiring. And it was movies that he would like to make at some point. Great animation here by David uh, Allen. Um, and um, in any case... Um, so we made a movie called Shrieker and it was shot it over at, um, a place called Lacey Street Studios. And if you look at Shrieker and look at, what is the name of that uh, movie? The, um, the big hit. It was, um, about the guy who sawed his arm off. What was it? There's a lot of sequels with a creature in it. What was the name of that thing? It was Carrie Elways was in it. 
sawed his arm off. Lionsgate put it out. Anyways, that movie was shot at Lacey Street Studios as well. So we got a very similar location. But Lacey Street Studios is where they shot Cagney and Lacey, the TV series. So, um, but uh, I shot the whole movie there with a new DP named Brad Rushing, who did a brilliant job. He's now doing a, shooting a bunch of big Netflix movies. And um, the, um, um, so we shot it in six days, worked out really great. And Charlie says, um, please um, uh, keep making them. Because, see, the thing is, Bride of the Head of the Family, he needed twice the amount of money that I needed for Shrieker, and he needed a release. I had a release date set up, so I had to reverse engineer the schedule, get it posted in time and everything. And this is 35 millimeter, and we also cut the negative on that. So, um, sadly, the movie was released uh, in, what was it called? Um, a Pan and Scan. And I think there is a scope version of it out there on some DVD. I think we, I think the DP made a version of it in scope when we did the original telecine session. Anyways, but <clears throat> getting back to Doll, sorry, it's Empire, it's Charles Band, it all sort of blurs together. I think the photography in this movie is look at this stuff. I mean, this how do you light a hallway? You know, ask back Albert. Sadly, Mac is no longer with us. Uh, sadly, Albert Band is no longer with us. Sadly, Ben Burton Burt, um, Charlie's secretary, is no longer with us. Sadly, Kirk Hansen, head of visual, head of production at at uh, Full Moon, is no longer with us. Sadly, uh, David Allen is no longer with us. Um, it's just uh, we lost uh, so many people from that Empire era, and sadly, Stewart's gone. And I hope that they use his commentary for this movie because he might, would probably have done a scene specific. I'm doing more about sort of the, the vibe of Empire. I mean, Empire was so great because Empire was so great because you could go in there and pitch a movie and he, you'd go down to um, you'd go down to accounting and pick up your check. I mean, there was no script. I mean, he was just, they were trying to just they had to make a lot of movies, and uh, it's so funny. I remember the accountant was a woman named Jane Go, and um, I loved her a lot. And she ended up being she was the girlfriend of Sam Raimi's producer Robert. What was his name? Robert Hamill. Robert, I can't remember his name, but she was his girlfriend. So that's how they made. Um, we were doing Doctor Alien while um, Scott Spiegel uh, was doing. Um, Jesus, I'm getting so old, I can't remember these movies anymore. There was a slasher movie that he made that the MPAA just completely tore to shreds. What is it called? It was called, I can't remember. Anyway, so they made that, and then uh, the guy that did, um, that wrote the script for Pretty, Pretty Woman, wrote and directed a movie called Cannibal Woman in the Avocado Jungle of Death with my friend uh, Adrian Barbeau. And I also got to meet Shannon Tweed. I had coffee with her one day. Oh, my God. So cool. No wonder Gene Simmons is a change man. Shannon Tweed is like the greatest woman. She is so fucking cool. It's so sweet and so hot and so everything. And she's just funny. And she gets it. She's in on the joke. Gene Simmons, very lucky man. Um, Shannon's a really good Canadian girl. But anyways, I digress. Um, is 
Gail O'Grady or Bunty Bailey? Bunny, Bunty Bailey is in this movie. She's a British actress. I was going to put her in sorority bays. We couldn't work it, work it out. But, um, but uh, I remember Empire was like you. I'd walk into Empire. It was the strangest place. And Anthony Barneo, who was their head casting director, he's no longer with us. Jesus Christ, everybody's gone. Um, and um, you'd walk into the main lobby. And on the left was Anthony's office. And then so everybody, all the actors that were auditioning would sit there. And you'd walk in. There was Brad Pitt. There was Luke Perry. There was um, who I got to meet. Brad Pitt actually auditioned for me for Dr. Alien. Um, who else was there? Johnny Depp was there. Um, oh, there's Rennie Harland. Um, oh, Sam Raimi, what are you doing here? Um, it, it was just like, it was, everybody was, we're all just getting started, you know? Uh, it was, and Empire was a place that you could go and get a lead role and not be a star, you know? So anything I really wanted to make, he said, you know, just let us know. I mean, he goes, I'd like to come up with the titles and then you could just go make them as long as you can make them for the price that we had discussed. And so we, uh, I did after Dream Maniac, we didn't really work for six months. He, Dream Maniac was just a mess. It was kind of a mess, uh, to tell you the truth. <clears throat> but it, um, he ended up giving me Creepazoids and he really liked Creepazoids. And um, one of the rare situations where he actually came up with a title, not me. Uh, actually, I came up with a title, not him. Um, and uh, and then I did Sorority Babes after that, and then I did Dr. Alien. And the one thing that I realized at Empire is that when you meet a special effects makeup guy, they're usually the funniest people on Earth. There's something about, there's something in those latex things they create and the sculpting and the plaster that turns these guys into absolutely hilarious comedians. So when I met Ken Hall, he used to make me laugh so hard. I just said, and he was so much calm. I said, you got to write a script. He had just, he had just wrote and written and he just wrote and directed, I guess is the correct, um, a film called Evil Spawn for Fred Ray. I told him to get, do this movie called Terror Night. I got him the writing and directing job on that. He ended up writing it and then the, he left it as a director. It's just not happening with the producer. Um, and, um, and then we did Ghost Rider together because we had worked with Judy Landers on Dr. Alien at Empire. And, um, um, it's, you know, and so we did that and Ken said, I'd really like to direct it. I've not written it, but I like to, I said, okay, you can direct it. So Ken, you know, still a friend who did a lot of stuff. He wrote a lot of stuff. He was got his career going, um, as I said, Chris Endicott, who was at Empire with me because I brought him in from Portland. He uh, just finished Primevals. Everything always seems to be at Empire. I mean, it was the craziest company because the movies were so oddball. And some people were a little offended by them. Like, uh, they were going to do a film called Space Sluts and the Slammer. And I thought, oh, this is going to be funny. And... Um, um, it wasn't, you know, we just, we got the script going, but at, at that point, the company was starting to fold. Um, it just, again, it, it, some of these companies, here's the deal. I think that it probably could, could have succeeded, but it's once in a while, you'll go into these companies, these independent companies. And I met with all of them, Atlantic releasing Vestron. I mean, I had more meetings with Ellen at Vestron than you can imagine. Um, uh, all these other independents I met with Moshe Diem on a trans world. I met with. 
Robert over at um, at uh, that big company. Uh, I keep forgetting the company's names, but I worked met with all of them, and they all had the same bank. So I guess the moral of the story is uh, don't borrow money from a bank whose name you can't pronounce that's domiciled in a country that you've never heard of. <laughs> or since we're in the movie business, maybe those are the only banks you should borrow money from. So anyway, so, but everybody went bye-bye all very, very quickly. The only ones that were the smart ones was uh, Mr. Bob Shea and uh, Michael Lynn over at a little company called New Line Cinema, who didn't play with any of that kind of cash and did it on their own terms and made their own movies and became an incredible success story. Um, opening night of Nightmare on Elm Street, boy, let me tell you, on Hollywood Boulevard, was just incredible. Just incredible. Um, but um, and I knew at that point that movie was that, that company was going to take off because it was just huge. But um, but you know so you know, I did a lot of films then. And then Charlie, I did a lot of pictures at Full Moon. I uh, he kept asking me back. I he just said, hey, can you do this one in Romania? I really kind of liked Romania. I did the first film I did there was kind of two. I did Lurid Tales of the Castle Queen, which was an erotic. And I did um, Petticoat Planet, too. I did two movies back-to-back. Um, everybody seemed to get 8 to 12 weeks to shoot a movie. I got 8 to 12 days to shoot a movie. So it was very, very quick. And I was working with a Romanian crew. But I loved Romania. I loved working there. I, I haven't been there in a while, but I still have friends there. And I was shooting L.A. And then, you know, Charlie got a deal with a company called Kushner Locke. Um, P Peter Locke had produced uh, Wes Craven's Hills Have Eyes and Hills Have Eyes Part 2. And um, so um, we started making family films. So I got to direct family films. Um, I got to do, I mean, Charlie even let me direct one of the Prehysteria movies, which is really was kind of the Rolls Royce of the company. So for Charlie to give me the keys to that Rolls Royce, I was thankful. Um, and, uh, but again, what's surprising about a lot of these companies, you meet with them, there's like five or six people that run the whole operation. Then you blink and there's 111 people on payroll. These things, they grow, they grow so fast. And then Charlie took over the whole, I mean, he had the big empire pictures building, which had four stories or three stories, but not enough parking. And then across the street, he had a one level one. So, I mean, it was just. You know, the money, production, you spend money, and money goes out a lot faster than it comes in. So I get it, you know, and I always sat with the CFOs. I always sat with the number crunchers, and I always tried to give accurate accounting statements that and cash flow schedules that were proper and all that. But, um, you know, but I know, but, uh, but you know, I, again, but again, I met a lot of the visual effects guys. John Beekler, who's no longer with us. It's just unbelievable how many people have gone. Um, John was a lovely man, and um, uh, he had a guy working with him named Billy Butler, who had done some work on Creepazoids and stuff, and Billy has taken off and basically is the staff director over at uh, Full Moon now. And uh, we talk once in a while when he's not busy and when he's not in Cleveland. So Billy's had a really great career. And, um, you know, working with Full Moon and... This is a pretty great opening, a pretty great ending here. Um, uh, but the, um, so a lot of these movies, you know, they kind of went away. I mean, they, they, they got foreclosed on by the bank and then they ended up with, um, you know, a major studio. And uh, well, what's nice is they 
remastered from the original negatives it looks like and um it's really really gorgeous but it was a very magical time and full moon was sort of birthed from empire and then you know now with full moon streaming and also companies like arrow you can see movies like this and they're just so rare there's just this non-cgi organic um what do they call vintage um movies that just don't have that crappy cg i mean i look cgi I, mean, I use it all the time so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna you know but again i mean i use it to paint out wires and to to smooth over certain things but trying to pull a, do a full creature i I'll, I'll take the old way of doing it by by the masters also we lost stan winston who was a really good friend of Charlie. Stan Winston was very involved in Full Moon on a silent partner basis. He used to come in and help out Charlie when Charlie needed help because they had worked together back on um, Mansion of the Doomed and stuff like that. So it's kind of nice that, you know, um, Charlie, you know, he keeps his friends and a lot of people. I mean, he's he got married to his head of production, Debbie Dion, who's ultimately the woman who really discovered me and, brought me into empire and i got to meet with i could not believe it. i was meeting with him and you know i just you know it was just great work because I, the thing is he and i you know when especially when we were on the road doing the full moon horror road show um i'd always bring up crash i if you don't get a chance to see crash see crash it's on the full moon streaming site but it's also there's a blu-ray of it it's really really amazing um and um uh, it just, it's, it doesn't make a lick of sense, but it's a lot of fun. So I always talked to him about Crash. He goes, why do you keep bringing up that fucking movie? And also I like Laser Blast. I love Tourist Trap. I thought that was great. But, um, you know, um, it's just amazing. Some of these people that, so I can, Peter Minugian, when I, when I was working at Roger Corman's, I was working on a film called, when I first, that was my first job in Hollywood. I was 18. I was a production assistant for Roger. And that was, um. It was uh, Jim Cameron was the art director. Bill Paxton was a carpenter on the set. It was called Galaxy of Terror. We had Robert England, who I got to meet, and very funny, funny man. Um, the um, uh, uh, who else was on that show? Oh, uh, who directed the Red Shoe Diaries? Zalman King was an actor on it and stuff. So I met a lot of people back in the old days. But Peter Minugian. Whereas our first assistant director and Betsy Magruder was our second AD. Basically, the ADs are the foreman of the set. They run the set. They uh, assistant director is probably not the best description for them because they're really sort of a set foreman. They run the show. Directors creatively, you know, but the AD gets the shit done for you. So Peter Manucci was there. Peter came over from 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 Rogers and got to direct. I think he directed. Enemy, what was the name of that movie? There was a movie they shot in Spain, The Eliminators. He got to direct that. Um, and um, there was, um, uh, and then Betsy left and first AD'd um, um, The Terminator um, because she had worked with Jim over at Roger Corman's. So Jim Cameron. And, uh, I had done a series of movies for a really, really dynamic young producer named Don Borchers. 
I had done, I was did craft service for him on Angel. Got to meet a lot of great people on that, including Frank Darabond. Um, I'm not name dropping here, guys. I'm just letting you know there's, we all started together. There wasn't very many of us back in the 80s, to tell you the truth. Um, so uh, we all knew each other pretty much. And then I did a film called Crimes of Passion, where I got to work with Ken Russell and Kathleen Turner and became friends with Tony Perkins. And really loved that experience and became very good friends with Barry Sandler. I remember Don, I, we were, I, I was with Don, with Don, uh, no, I wasn't with Don Borchers. I was with a friend of mine and we got invited to the cast and crew screening of Hard Bodies over at MGM in one of the studios there, the big screening rooms there. And so we went <clears throat> and it starred the absolutely gorgeous Grant Kramer, who I immediately fell in love with on that movie. But um, the movie ends and Don's walking out and said, hey, Don, because I had just done Angel with him. He goes, oh, hey, Dave. He goes, hey, I just got a green light of a movie called Crimes of Passion. You want to do it for me? I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'd be happy to. He says, you're going to like this one. It's uh, from the writer of Making Love, the director of Altered States, the star of Romancing the Stone, and the star of Psycho. And I went, uh, count me in. <laughs> Anyways, that was six months of... What's your thing about Ken Russell? I mean, I've not really bad-mouthed him before because I really loved him. I really did because he was a genius. And he was also, <clears throat> on Crimes of Passion, was like the fastest director I'd ever seen work. I mean, this man... I mean, we never went over 12 hours a day. He knew he had all of his blocking. He knew how to talk to actors. But also, he just, you know, he shot it in a way that was easy to edit. Belongs in a juvenile home, that little punk. Helping that murderer. Come on, hand her over. She's my kid. Being a parent and I remember he delivered his director's cut on Crimes of Passion three days after we wrapped. Okay, that's the kind of director Ken Russell was. I loved him. Great guy. We never talked. Because I kind of kind of meandered up to him once about three weeks into the shoot because he was very, not snooty, he was just very reserved. Yes, I'll fix and I just, I walked up to him and I said, um, you can destroy as many toys as you like. I really love the devils. And he goes, ah, the devils. That was a bit of a romp now, wasn't it? You know, and, and I was like, yeah, a bit of a romp. It changed my life, that movie. But our DP was a British man named Dick Bush who had shot Victor Victoria, a number of films, and uh, his work was amazing, but also had done some um, British horror films. So he was around um, uh, the, the genre for a while. Dick had shot, oh my God, for Tony Tenzer, I can't remember it, um, the movie, um, kind of a gothic horror. Oh, I can't remember that one. Oh, Blood on Satan's Claw. He had photographed that. And was, so Dick was a lovely man. And um, of course, so I got to work. Then I got to work on Tough Turf um, with um, Fritz Kirsch, who I adore. And so I did a lot of movies for Don Borchers, and it worked out really well. Flash forward, 1996, 12 years later, sadly, um, Ken was let go from the movie Skeletons, and I took over the movie as the director, and I was his craft service guy just 12 years prior. So, welcome to Hollywood. No rule book, no seniority. Oy. But in any case, I loved Ken. I think he's brilliant. And Crimes of Passion is a brilliant movie. And Kathleen Turner is the coolest broad I've ever met in my life. What a pro. What a pro. And Tony Perkins and I became really good friends. He was very, very sweet. 
very sweet. So flirty and ridiculous. It was like so silly. But um, but um, in any case, so so I got to work with a lot. But I just, you know, this is Hillary Mason on the left. I think she's Canadian. She's been in quite a few films. Um, she's on the left there. Um, but the, um, and then you got Guy Rolf. I love him and it's with white hair. He didn't have that for me on uh, on my Puppet Master movie. But in any case, oh, you see a little boom operator flying on the, on the, on the right there. So um, anyway, so Stephen Lee, I think here, very funny. Yeah, this movie, this movie really, really works like gangbusters. I think I saw this. Yeah, I saw it on Hollywood Boulevard. But um, in any case, I, um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but it just, you know, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, great, great time. I've since directed, I think my assistant Connor just told me the other day, I said, how many movies have I made? And he says, directed or produced? I said, well, just direct it. He says, let me check. And there's 177. So I've been around a long time and I've worked with all the crazies. I work with all the great people. I worked with amazing actors and directors and DPs and Remember back on Angel, our DP was Andy Davis, who went on to become a big shot director, and he was a lovely man. The only person I don't think I've ever gotten along with is, sadly, and I know his past, but yeah, Richard Lynch and I on Transfers 2 got along like gangbusters. Like I said, I was the line producer, but directing him, he never, he wouldn't even look at me. I was like, he was like, why are we letting this production guy direct this movie? And he was just really kind of rude. And it was really near the end of his career where he was doing, you know, backyard camcorder, ketchup in my face, horror crap. And I was just like, you know, we're giving you this opportunity and it should have been Christopher Neem. And, you know, it's just kind of a frustrating experience, the whole thing with him. And I, he really kind of ruined it for me, actually. And I don't, I don't like to speak, speak ill of the dead, but he was a bad boy. And um, I'll never forgive him. But um, in any case, Stuart Gordon, one of the greatest uh, filmmakers around, great, lovely, lovely man, sweetheart. Um, he kind of reminded me of Paul Bartel. Big Papa Paul, you know, Paul Leader, Big Papa Paul Leader, too. I loved, I've worked with some old timers, and, and they really respect what you, you know, their, their, their history and stuff. But they also go, why would you like that movie of all the movies I've made? Because I with with Guy Rolf, I just talked about Mr. Sardonicus the whole time. Tell us what it was like to work with Bill Castle. Um, Guy Rolf. Oh, and then I I did a sequel to with the puppet. I'll say that story real quick. I did a film called Retro Puppet Master with Greg Sestero, who went in the start of the movie The Room. Well, Greg was brand new. He's 20, and I discovered him and put him in the movie, and we went to Romania to make this movie together. And we brought Guy in from London. He had moved from the Spanish potato farm to London because of health reasons. It was better to be in London. And um, so uh, we fly him in for one day's work in Bucharest, London to Bucharest, three hours. So he, he flies out to Bucharest, and we're fogged in in Bucharest, and we're shooting in the winter. And they turn around, they fly back to London. Okay, so we lose a day. I shoot around him. Boom, he comes in. But there was one scene in the first page of the script, because how I would do it is I'd make my notes on the English script, and then we'd go to Romania, and I would give it to the production manager, 
and they would translate it, including my notes, into Romanian. But then the, the English actors got a copy of my script with notes. So the first page is <clears throat> Andre Chalon is supposed to be carrying that goddamn, uh, all those, what was it, the, the big... Uh, the big suitcase full of puppets. What was it called? A uh, footlocker. I don't know what it was. A big foot. He was supposed to be carrying that damn thing all the way to um, up the thing in the middle of the night. And I go, and then I said double, meaning like I should have a double for Andre because I'm not going to have him carry that damn thing. It weighs a ton. It weighs 100 pounds, 150 pounds. And <clears throat> Guy Rolf was like 88. And would, if he picked that up, he would have shattered. So I put double. Well, Guy Rawl finally gets off the plane. He's exhausted, gets the script, sees the thing, thinks I'm going to double him for that role, which I was going to. And he was so insulted. He goes, David, how dare you talk? say you're going to use a double before you even discuss it with me? And I said, I didn't say anything. It's just written on the script. It's a note with a question mark on it, please. But what happens is with men like this who were virile, strong, and once they're old, you start thinking, oh, you got to take your driver's license away. We're going to double you for the scene carrying the puppet trunk. They get a little... So, so anyways, we we start shooting. And he goes to the, back to the hotel and he goes, David, Bucharest is the most boring city in the world. Have you ever been to Boston? Yeah. Like and I said, well, yeah... But isn't it, I mean, an 88 guy, I'm not going to be seeing you down at the club, am I? His wife came with him. But um, I'm not going to be seeing you at the club, so it's going to be boring. But, um, hey, guy, we're at least in Transylvania. Guy Rolf. Anyways, Mac Alberg, the incredible Stuart Gordon, and uh, Empire. Back in the days, we used to make them 35 millimeter with physical effects organic physical effects in front of the lens and we tried to double uh, Italy for the US those are the good old days so but anyway so um, I'm hoping you enjoyed my um, well my my just my commentary on on um, I, I think these are just thoughts I, I just uh, I, I was asked to do this I, I love Matt and and Dave and uh, they're great guys at the Schlock Pit. And I just, uh, you know, I wanted to let everybody know how much I love Stuart Gordon. And I miss him. He was a good friend. He was very special to me. And um, he uh, gave me a lot of compliments, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of pep talks. And um, he was uh, way too kind. And missed horribly and um but um you know um so many of the people that work there anthony barnero great casting director so many people all gone but charlie's alive and kicking i just spoke to him this morning and he's making movies faster than ever so but anyways thanks to everybody at arrow uh thanks to matt and dave the schlockpit.com check it out Check out my website, Rapid Heart TV. And um, I hope you liked my musings about uh, the incredible uh, Empire Pictures and how much fun it was to, uh, to work there. 
and how much fun. John Vulich is gone too. Jesus Christ, they're all gone. Um, but um, but anyway, so signing off here uh, from Los Angeles, uh, rapidheart.tv, theschlockpit.com. Arrow, thanks a lot. 